0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Hey, Peter. It
1: is hot, hot, hot in the Southern California desert, right, Lori?
0: Oh, it's going to be like
1: 118 today? Oh, great. Just another 118 a day. <laughs> talk about... Having to modify your lifestyle to keep the people and the animals happy and healthy.
0: Really? Now, here are some summertime pet tips. And some of these are from the NHV Natural Pet Products, makers of veterinarian-approved and formulated plant-based natural supplements from organically grown and wild-crafted herbs. Hydrate well. Okay, we all know that. You need to be hydrated well during the heat and so do your animals. So ensure that your pets have access to water at all times. Try to keep fresh water and cool if possible. You know, put ice cubes in the water. Some some dogs love that. One of our dogs that didn't do well spit up. It upset Paco's stomach to have mm-hmm. the, the water too cool.
1: You know, I, I've always wondered something and I don't know if you have an answer to this but if dogs have a good sense of when they need to drink like is their thirst mechanism really attuned to what they really need you know a lot of people they don't think to drink and you know when it's so hot there you really got to stay ahead of it you know and you don't realize your thirst doesn't tell you and then you get tired and dehydrated but I wonder if dogs are like that
0: I don't know keeping ice cubes in the water or keeping the water a little cooler and in the shade so it's more desirable for them to drink having it available put multiple bowls out there for them putting a little chicken broth or adding pieces of a favorite fruit to one of the bowls to encourage drinking is sometimes beneficial
1: yeah i bet a little taste of chicken broth in the water would go a long way like just a little flavor would be enough you know Cosmo just had his second little knee surgery done. Poor and, thing, I know. And he was not really interested in his water till we put some chicken broth in there, low-sodium chicken broth, and he drank that.
0: And on that same note, if you travel with your pet during the heat, or if you travel with your pet at all, I mean, always carry a compact, portable pet water bowl and some water. Yep, we do that. Yeah, we our have, dogs get very thirsty when traveling. We have a couple of bowls in
1: there. Minivan
0: Talk about traveling. Don't leave your pets in your car. I mean, how many times do we have to say that? Uh-huh. even if it's just for a couple minutes, uh-huh. even if it, even if it's parked in the shade and even if the windows are cracked, yeah. temperatures elevate quickly in vehicles, and it only takes minutes to cause irreversible organ damage or worse, like death.
1: You know, I saw online people are now getting more attuned to their legal rights to break into a hot car if they see the dog and one little trick that someone recommended was to just take a photograph or document what the temperature is outside uh, before you break the window so you at least have a piece of evidence. Oh, good idea. So, it wasn't like 50 degrees and you felt like breaking it.
0: Ticks and fleas can be more prevalent in the summertime months.
1: Yeah, ticks and Lyme disease that they can carry.
0: Right. So, talk to your vet
1: about what you might want to do to stay out of trouble. Right. And you need to know what a tick looks like. And exactly. And if you see one and you get it off or you, it's fallen off and you got to save it and show it to your vet so, so he or she believes you.
0: Good point. Okay. Know the signs of heat stroke, excess panting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Rapid breathing, panting, reddish tongue, lethargy, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue or depression, muscle tremors, staggering. Depression. depression. Yeah, oh, So I have heat stroke. Excess salivation. I really have heat stroke. (laughs) Okay, and thickened saliva. All these can be signs of heat stroke. So if you notice any of these signs in your pets... Get him or her to a cool shaded area immediately. Wrap your dog in a cold, wet towel, especially the underarm, belly, groin areas. A fan may be used on the dog during the cooling process and bring your dog to the vet immediately. Heat stroke can be deadly. Oh, one more thing I want to add to this, Peter. You know, people think, okay, they can cool their dogs down enough and not have to take their dog to the vet and avoid some vet charges. But I'll tell you, you can't cool your dog too rapidly. You will cause shock in the dog. So Mm. you can't do that. Allow access to cool water, but don't force your dog to drink. So keep your dog cool with the wet towels and bring the dog into the vet.
1: Yeah. You know, when our power went out due to the planned outage of our beloved local electricity. When it was 110 degrees outside? Yes. We also wanted to cool down one of our dogs, our older Susie. But we had no power, so I couldn't, I didn't have a fan. We did have ice, which we could have used, didn't need that. We had cool water, so we just used that in a towel. But it would have been great to have like a little battery-powered fan. You know, I would have liked one of those. It also reminded me, I did some further research about these battery and hand crank generated radios. You know, we live in a terrible cell zone and Wi-Fi is not working. I was really isolated. I would have liked a little radio. In fact, we need to get our emergency pack for people and animals really updated. Oh, we definitely have to do that soon. Yeah. Put that on the list.
0: I will put that on your list right away. (laughs) And here's some cooling off aids, right? If possible, get a kiddie pool or the sprinklers, right? We had a kiddie pool once.
1: We tried to get Paco into it, I think. He didn't like it. And then it just disintegrated in the hot sun. Yeah. But they're good for one season max, so.
0: We put in a little mister system that keeps the dogs cool. But, you know, we Peter and I tend not to leave our dogs out when it's too hot out. So we just bring them in. Right. Now, going back to the idea of putting a cool, wet towel under your dog's body, I mean, this tends to be more comfortable for him or her than their warm bedding or the hot floor.
1: Yeah, our dogs like the cool tile floor. We have ceramic tile, and but that's a nice idea. Just put a little damp towel down there, and let's see if they go right on it. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that right now.
0: Wait, where are you going? I'm not done. <laughs> When the humidity is high, it can cause a pet's temperature to rise because they become unable to cool themselves. Yeah. Body temperatures can rise very quickly and become dangerous, as we spoke about. So be sure to keep your pet indoors and out of the hot sun. That's the bottom you know, line here. You know, just I can't believe that
1: our electric company did what they did to us. It just, just going incredible. through this makes me so much more angry at them. But
0: they wait nine months to do this planned outage. Yes. And then it's shut ma- it.
1: It's just like routine maintenance. Right. Oh, it's so disrespectful.
0: Now, cats and dogs love to bask in the sun, but too much time in the sun can cause heat stroke and even increase the risk of developing skin cancers. And your dogs sometimes don't know what's too much, right, Peter?
1: Yeah. Yep. One of our dogs would stay
0: there much
1: longer than than would be good for her. Plus, she does have a very fine
0: coat. Great point, Peter, because pets can get sunburn Mm. and burns, especially to the sensitive areas of their body, like the tip of their ears and their paw pads are sensitive to hot surfaces. So talking about exercise again need to limit your exercise on especially these hot days and go for your walks or have your playtime early in the morning or later in the evening when it's cooler and try to keep the exertion level lower also instead of using the sidewalks go on the grass it's going to be easier on their paws and put your palm down on the concrete or the asphalt if it's too hot for you to step on then it's too hot for your pets to step on yep and think about bringing that portable water bowl and a bottle of water for your pet too yeah
1: Now I want to get back to the idea of swimming dogs, okay? So you and I, in our years together, we've been in Palm Springs. We've always had a pool like many, many people do, and we've had a series of dogs, and none of them has wanted anything to do with the pool. Now everyone knows that you have to teach a new dog, if you've got a pool, where the stairs are. So in case they get knocked in and you're not around, they know where to swim to. Even if they don't like swimming, where the stairs are so they can get out. So that's the one basic thing about, about pools. But we've tried just for fun to get all these dogs to enjoy swimming or to cool down. And we've failed and they've bitten us or cried or whatever. So finally, we have a success story. And this is Skye. She is a pit mix. She's pretty small. She's like 45 pounds. She's very sweet. She's very athletic. And initially, she didn't want anything to do with the water either, right, Lori? And uh, we sh- did the usual thing. We showed it to her. I got scratched all over trying to show her where the stairs were. And uh, then she finds a neighborhood playmate. And so you're developing this relationship with a very nice couple. And they've got a couple of dogs. But one in particular is playing really nicely with Sky on the grass. And then in our neighbor's backyard, the dog goes in the pool and shows Sky how it's done. And Sky a little cautious at first, but before you know it, is like diving in. And she's become a swimmer. Uh, I could never teach her, but she's learned from this other dog. It was so cute. That's right? the cutest thing. So now back home, she loves, you throw the ball in the water and she just do a belly flop into it, grab the grab it, and then swim on out to the edge and go up the stairs, drop the ball, do it again. Do that eight or nine times. You have a happy, tired, wet, dog. It's really great.
0: Peter, one last thing I want to talk about before we take our break. A lot of people think it might be a good idea to shave their dog Mm. during these hot summer months. And I urge people before you do that, talk to your veterinarian or your respected groomer, maybe your veterinarian is better, Um, and get their opinion because there could be drawbacks to this solution of trying to keep your pet cool by shaving him or her, including a sudden lack of insulation and decreased sun protection. We spoke about yeah. sunburns and cancer, and, and causing cancer, right? So so talk to your vet before you consider doing that. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, we have the PetSafe Bolt laser cat toy. The PetSafe Bolt laser cat toy is an interactive laser toy that provides hours of fun for you and your cat. Simply hold the toy in your hand or place it on a flat surface, turn it on, and watch your pet pounce, chase, and bat at the exciting laser patterns. Pets love the random patterns they can chase across the floor, up the walls, and over furniture. It features random laser patterns to engage your cat in fun, interactive play, an automatic mode, and a manual mode. It has a timer that automatically turns off the toy after 15 minutes, and an adjustable mirror to aim the laser across different surfaces. That's the Bolt Laser Cat Toy from PetSafe. Welcome back. The largest frog on Earth is the Goliath frog, also known as the Goliath bullfrog, and the giant slippery frog. They are found in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, and they can weigh up to 17 pounds or more, and their bodies can be more than a foot in length. The world's smallest frog discovered in Papua New Guinea measures a mere 7 millimeters long and maybe the world's smallest vertebrate. One reason I find frogs so delightful and fascinating is the huge variety they present. Now, another person who thinks a lot about frogs a lot more than I do, I'm sure, is Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. Visit him at saveallfrogs.com. Welcome, Matt.
2: Well, uh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Matt, I know you have a number of frog issues on your mind, so let's begin with frog populations. Are they really in decline?
2: Yes. So there's around 5,000 frog species worldwide, and of that... Over 30% are listed as at risk of extinction. So that's pretty significant. Um, And then several frog species have already gone extinct. So frog populations are very much under threat, and that is why, you know, we're seeing those statuses, like those extreme endangered statuses um, being applied to them, because they are experiencing such a dramatic decline.
1: And we talk about similar issues with other species all the times. Why are frogs in decline?
2: It's really an amalgamation of several reasons, Um, the first being the loss of habitat. So essentially, you know, if a frog loses its home, its odds of survival are not very good. So places like marshes and wetlands and meadows and woodlands, too many of these natural green spaces are being destroyed for developmental construction and agriculture. Now, where good habitat does remain, it's often degraded through pollution and contaminants and pesticides and oils and gasolines and frogs, being amphibians, are extremely sensitive to any kind of pollution or contaminant because they don't have scales on their skin like reptiles um, or fur like mammals. They don't really have any kind of armor or protection. They just have very delicate, permeable skin. So that makes them especially sensitive to those sort of substances being in their environment. And then a lot of frogs are killed on roads every year because a lot of roads crisscross between their habitats and what happens especially in the United States and Canada is a lot of the frogs um, that are breeding in the springtime they have to cross over roads to get to breeding pools and then unfortunately you have a lot of them being killed en masse And, and what's especially sad about that is that's the mature breeding portion of the population being killed. So not only are we losing those frogs, but because they're unable to breed because they're being killed, we're losing the next generation of frogs as well. And then another thing that happens is harvesting. So frogs are being captured from the wild to be sent off for the fishing bait trade and for food markets. And, you know, when we add all of these things up and then there's climate change and disease, it accounts for a massive number of frogs being lost every year due to these human induced threats so that's why our frogs are not doing very well and why so many are at risk of extinction
1: okay so populations are in decline matt what cruelty issues do individual frogs face
2: thing i want to mention in terms of that is that frogs are vertebrate animals just like dogs and cats and just like dogs and cats they experience pain and suffering and cruelty unfortunately there's that old misconception you know that old usage of word wording Cold-blooded, and often people think of frogs being cold-blooded. Therefore, they don't feel pain. That's not true. First off, they're not cold-blooded; they're ectothermic, which just means their body temperature is reliant on the environment around them. They have to warm up or cool off um, via behavioral changes and and utilizing different areas in their environment. That's all that means. Um, So, frogs are very capable of feeling pain and suffering, and unfortunately, they experience that with a lot of those trades I just talked about. So food markets, a lot of these frogs are sold live. Um, in some food markets, they skin the frogs alive and sell them that way. Like, you, like We're talking about really horrific things that happen to these poor animals. And then the bait trade, you know, frogs are sold live for fishing bait and then are, are stabbed with hooks and then tossed into the water. Now, Now, say I was going on a radio program and I was talking about, you know, someone was using kittens or puppies and they were stabbing them with hooks, like there would be massive outrage. People would be appalled by such things. But I think because frogs being amphibians and and there are those misconceptions about them, slimy and cold and cold blooded, you know, people are often not as sympathetic towards them. So it's important to really make those connections that, you know, the frog is a living breathing vertebrate creature just like dogs and cats and other mammals that we're more familiar with and just like those animals they are experiencing a lot of cruelty from these trades that are exploiting them so not only do these trades are affecting their numbers in the wild and are a serious conservation concern but it is also a very very concerning matter in terms of animal cruelty like you know like I said we're literally you know there's trades Set up where anglers are, you know, using frogs on masse and then stabbing them with hooks while they're still alive. So, and not only is that cruel to the frog, and not only do those bait trades deplete wild populations, but it also spreads disease too. Like frog populations are crashing because of um, two diseases in particular: ranavirus and chytrid fungus. And say they catch a batch of frogs and then ship them a hundred miles away and you, to an area where the environment is healthy and disease free and then you have a diseased animal and then it's cast into that wetland then it's just spread those diseases around to previously unaffected areas so you can get a pretty good idea how through those um, the shipping and unnatural movement of animals via these trades how those diseases can be spread very very quickly and, and to all these other places so the bait trade and the The trade of animals for dissections and food markets, these are all really triple-pronged threats. There are conservation concerns, there are cruelty concerns, and there are concern in terms of spreading the amphibian diseases to other areas. So those three in particular are very, very damaging.
1: We are speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist The website is saveallfrogs.com. And Matt, we are going to continue this discussion because we're just scratching the surface here in an upcoming segment, and we'll look forward to speaking to you real soon.
2: Sounds great.
1: Stick around more with animals today after the break.
3: There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home home cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors the key is to provide attention exercise and a stimulating environment play with your cat it's fun for both of you you can hide toys around the house too just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed you can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org.
1: Welcome back to the show. Lori, recently I came across this really amazing video showing these are headed geese. These are Himalayan geese and they're, they fly over the Himalayas. They fly higher than Everest. The people who are scaling Everest watch these geese just flying right by them. And, uh, you know, how do they breathe? I'm thinking. Right. And it's really amazing. They have a series of adaptations, and that's what we're going to talk about to allow them to go so high. And uh, one of the things they have, which is something that all birds have is this very uh, special respiratory system. And it's a anatomy that allows them to extract almost all or all the oxygen from their inspired air. All birds have a particular anatomy that allows them to extract all of the oxygen out of air much more than we can. And as I said, that's because there's no mixing of the exhaled with the inhaled air. They have pairs of air sacs, anterior and posterior, and that allows the air just to go by their uh, respiratory apparatus, their, their lungs, where the gas exchange happens just once. And these geese have that in addition to other adaptations that we can talk about another time, but birds need to extract all the oxygen out of the air so they can fly, because flying is such an energy-intensive activity. And so that's pretty neat. You know, Laurie, I don't remember learning about this in junior high school or high school or college. In you,
0: you geology didn't... or biology? Yeah, or... I
1: must have come across it at some time, but yeah. I, I lost it. But it's really fascinating. Very and, efficient
0: breathing. And
1: on, online, they've got some really great animations that just show you how the air flows. It's really interesting stuff. Anyway, that got us uh, thinking, right, Laurie, about other kinds of interesting adaptations, animals anywhere in the animal kingdom use. And uh, I found a couple interesting ones. Do you have one there?
0: Yes, I do have a few of them. Mm. Another animal with a very cool adaptation is the okapi. What's that? Okapi is an herbivore found exclusively in the northeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Specifically, they're found in the Ituri rainforest, sometimes called forest giraffes, even though to me they don't look like giraffes although they do have long tongues, but they look like a mix between a horse and a zebra. So it has like a body of a horse and its legs have stripes. Have you seen pictures of that? Yes, I have. Anyway, their cool feature is that they have scent glands on their feet that spread sticky tar-like territory markings to alert others of their territory. Mm. So this actually marks their territory. And it just so happens that males also mark their territory with urine, Mm. like some cats might do. Hmm. And this next adaptation I have is a very interesting example of resource conservation and involves the Bactrian camel. So there are only two surviving species of camel remaining, the single-humped camels from the Middle East and the Bactrian or double-humped camel from Central and East Asia's rocky deserts. Here, the temperatures range from minus 20 Fahrenheit, so freezing cold in winter, to 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. So Bactrian camels face extreme temperatures and thus have a couple of key adaptations that help them to survive these brutal environments. Mm. First, their humps store fat, which can be converted to water and energy when they need it. So giving the camels the ability to endure long periods of travel without water, which single hump camels also can do. And by the way, you know what single hump camels are called, Peter?
1: Are those dromedary camels?
0: Dromedary camels, very good. Secondly, they can forego sweating until their body temperatures reach nearly 105 degrees Fahrenheit, helping them conserve fluids. And another adaptation of the Bactrian camel is that they grow thick, long coats of hair each winter, and that coat sheds in the summer. Interesting, as their fat is depleted from their humps, the humps become floppy and flabby. And when camels do refill... They soak up water like a sponge. A very thirsty camel can drink 30 gallons of water in only 13 minutes. Okay, I've got
1: one here. I think it's better than your camel one. Uh, It has to do with geckos and how they are able to climb scale walls and even, you know, suspend themselves upside down. Do you ever wonder about that? Hmm. The geckos have special feet. Actually, they're little bulbous toes. They're covered in... Many microscopic hairs; they are called setae, and each of those setae splits off into even smaller bristles, hundreds of them called spatulae, and uh, they are so tiny that they are able to get really close to the contours of the wall or whatever surface they are they are climbing on. And that allows the molecules to interact with the molecules on the wall. So you get an electromagnetic attractive force due to the van der Waals force. How about that? And that's what allows them to do their amazing climbing feats, like climbing while they're upside down. But how do they control that? Recently, it was uh, determined that maybe geckos are able to modulate the degree of stickiness by altering the angle that these little spatulae take on their surface so they can go on off on off and scurry around very quickly that's so cool i think they're really neat
0: sloths sloths are native to central and south america the slowest mammals in existence did you know that didn't you say you had a friend in high school whose nickname was (laughs) the sloth (laughs) i said that you did say that didn't you you don't want to name them on the air Mm -hmm. do you And just a funny side note about these guys, they eat, sleep, make, give birth, and raise their young while hanging upside down in trees. So one very cool adaptation of the sloth is the green algae that it grows on its fur. This serves as camouflage and allows it to blend into the surroundings, which are trees in the tropical rainforest.
1: That's cool. Okay, this one is really neat. Do you know what the giant tube worm is? These are long worms. They live in the bottom of the sea. They live next to these hydrothermal vents. So these vents are powered by volcanic heat and nearly boiling water comes out of them. And they are way deep, like 8,000 feet below the ocean surface. Wow. So no sunlight energy gets there, but there is life and uh These tube worms, they are animals, and they feed on tiny bacteria. Now, the bacteria themselves get their energy right from the chemicals in the water that's spewed out. The process is called chemosynthesis, and the worms that eat these bacteria can grow to be eight feet in length. Interestingly, they have no mouth or digestive tract. They depend upon the bacteria that live inside them for their food, like symbiosis. So the bacteria convert these chemicals into organic molecules that provide food for the worm. Is that fascinating? Yes. Better than camels. It
0: could be like little jacuzzi for all the neighboring plants.
1: Exactly. I think you're
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> In Central Africa, you can find a species known as the hairy frog. Is the frog really hairy? Well, actually, it has hair-like strands of skin that males have around their legs and backs. Anyway, hairy frogs are also known as the horror frog. Why? Because when threatened, the frog deliberately breaks bones that protrude like claws through the skin of the feet. Now, I read some salamanders' ribs can do something similar to this, where the rib bolts out of the rib cage and they use them as weapons like poisonous barbs. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, anyway, the hairy or horror frogs, their hind feet contain claws that are made entirely of bone and that are underneath the skin. And a muscle connected to each bony claw can contract, breaking it off and pushing the claw through the skin. Wow.
1: Okay, Laurie, here's a neat one. I actually didn't know about this. There's this term called caudal, C-A-U-D-A-L, autotomy. That is when lizard or salamander or gecko, they can drop a piece of their tail and the tail wiggles and distracts their predator and the predator goes for their tail and then they run away. There are various ways that they are able uh, to do this, and they save it for when things are really dire because uh, dropping their tail, you know, they need their tails, they store a lot of energy in there, and uh, it takes a while for it to recover. Scientists are studying the leopard geckos because their tails, after they are released, seem to move in a peculiar way that may tell us something about the nervous system.
0: Okay. Well, last one, I have the freakiest adaptation of all, The Texas Horned Lizard...
1: Okay, I know that animal. I don't know what you're about to say.
0: Okay. Texas Horned Lizard is a North American lizard with a spiky body. The brown spiny body serves as an absolute camouflage so much so that it becomes difficult for the predator to spot it, especially when the lizard stands motionless. But one of its defense techniques is that the lizard can squirt blood from its eyes. Mm. When the Texas horned lizard feels threatened, it literally shoots blood out of its eyeballs. Okay, what a wonderful world we
1: live (laughs) in, right? Interesting. And there are zillions of these. It's fascinating. It is
0: fascinating. To Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most if not all bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed. Do appropriate obedience training and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats, but I know who does Robert Reed medical director VCA animal hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed. I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house?
4: Well, first off, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, But I think it's important any time you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. There are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides, as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk. And the exposure risk is different and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and, and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, yeah. um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic, those are all legitimate questions. Um, that you should ask, and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment, so that if you're treating for ants you you just treat for ants, if you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees, you know you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with it, specifically, if you know if you're having someone come over to your house uh, to to treat the area for pet for pests, then you, you of course want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, shoe I mean, bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that, you, uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you, as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be able, they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or the pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used, different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. You you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, um, d- go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of. If you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where, you know, where herbicides are more likely insecticides or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well.
0: Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here?
4: I think, that, again, it depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. Uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and you yeah. need to make sure that if they're intended to do that. Yeah. They don't, just because that's an, an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, but once it's dried, the, the chance that the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and, and licking them and, in fact, affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure, with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk.
0: And what are the signs of toxicity?
4: Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as roteticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain, and this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim like a dog or a cat. Uh, And uh, the, the most common side effect... Of something like snail bait is probably seizures.
0: Wow and what's the treatment for toxicity?
4: It depends again on what you're using. Um, It's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide the veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment.
0: Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 800-858-7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirschner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirschner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.